Aloha mai kako. Welcome to the Aloha Friday Conversation, Art, Culture, and Ideas in Hawaii. I'm Noe Tanigawa. So glad you're here today. We'll be hearing experiences from people on two ends of the real estate spectrum, and it's a drama that's playing out all across the state. One thing that's great about Hawaii, you can just get on the phone and talk with people in the thick of things. So I'd like you to meet Jared Gates, broker in charge at Big Island Homes and Land Company based in Hilo. Currently, he's president of the Hawaii Island Board of Realtors. Gates grew up in Waimanalo here on Oahu and moved to Hilo for college. And he says he just kind of fell in love with the Big Island. I did indeed. Yeah, it's a wonderful place to raise a family. It's still relatively affordable here on the Hilo side, and there's still a, a fair bit of space to spread out, which is really nice. I think that's why everybody's heading your way. <laughs> they seem to be coming in droves. Yes, it's true. Mm. Puna, of course, is the is the fastest growing subdivision because it's the, the most affordable. These are just people, well, average people. It's average people that we're seeing on the Puna side. On the Kona side, we're also seeing an influx of folks buying second homes and condos. There's been a, a massive surge in prices for Waikoloa condos just over the past six months. Those are in the million dollar range. We're seeing a very much a tightening in terms of homes under a million dollars on the whole Kona coastline. There's maybe a half a dozen on the market. On the Puna side, where the homes are more in the three to four hundred thousand dollar range, we're seeing new homes ranging between three hundred to five hundred that are moving, of course, really quickly. Are these homes that only for people who haven't lived here for the last four years or more? <laughs> I mean... truth, truth be told, a lot of the the homes that are selling in that in the lower price range are on island buyers and folks that are moving over from other islands. We're seeing a lot of that. Which is which? Which, truth be told, is is pretty wonderful. That it's still affordable, and and for you know a relatively normal working family, a mortgage for a three hundred and fifty thousand dollar house is still manageable if you can earn that wage working in Hilo. What kind of place is it? Three hundred fifty thousand. We have these subdivisions in Pune, these large subdivisions that were developed back in the sixties and seventies, where they don't have county infrastructure, so it's still gravel road access. Some of them are paved, some of them are not. It's water catchment systems. Um, it's septic systems per property, so there's no county, county sewer. Um, there is electricity and there is high-speed internet. And then these are going to be three-bedroom, two-bathroom homes, around 1,200 square feet. And that would be like Hawaiian Paradise Park, Ainoloa. They're also in Lava Zone 3, which for insurance purposes are considered safe and the insurance rates are, are reasonable prices are pushing up across the board for land, for homes, and that's going to be island-wide. And for us in Puna and the Big Island, too, in part, we usually see it kind of last in the state, right? Everybody else is already is already here. Kauai is here, Maui's here, Oahu's here, where there's just no inventory. And and so now, because of that, it's, it's also here we are in the same boat. So multiple offers, things selling for over asking price, this is interesting because, you know, Jared, um, you know, real estate really borders on social policy, right? At a certain right. point. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we're all looking at uh, affordable housing, the crunch that's going on that has been exacerbated by folks that are able to sell their homes on, on the mainland and, and roll their money over here and come in with a cash offer at over asking price. So then how do you compete if you're coming in with conventional financing or you know FHA, USDA, VA loans, 
it, it makes it real challenging to compete with the cash that's coming across the board. I'm really wondering what kind of incentives there are for property owners to, you know, to sell to local people. So there's a couple of factors there that I've seen play out. One of them is having the buyers actually walk through the property and then making an offer based on that. They're not coming over and going, oh my goodness, I thought the ocean was right down the road. <laughs> what do you mean? And it's cliff line and you have to go for a 45 minute <laughs> drive to get in the water. What also goes on is we get the sight unseen offers. They haven't seen the neighborhood or the locale. They're not aware that there's a rooster farm a half a block away and then they cancel. So for a buyer's agent, that's a tool, you know, as an incentive to listen, maybe you should consider these folks, even though they've got conventional financing, they're well qualified and they know the area, they know the property, and it's not going to be something where they, where they cancel at the end of the deal. That's, what if they're not offering over asking like the other guys are? That's the rub on it. And the other piece of it that goes on there is perhaps upwards of 40% of those folks that do move here after two years will turn around and move back. Their family doesn't come to visit quite as often as they had hoped. It's not what they expected. You move over to Pune in December and you get two and a half months of rain and you're like, oh, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that's not what, what's expected. And then this is still, we're really rural over here. This is rural, dirt roads. You know, there's almost a pioneer aspect to it. You have to have your own propane system going. Some people are on solar. Water catchment systems are a whole nother adventure to get used to. Living becomes almost a full-time job. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, that's part of the deal. Is it's, it's not just as simple as, as turning on your, your hose bib for your water. You have to actually maintain your water tank and maintain the systems and the filters. And, and like yeah, me, I like yeah. that, actually. And others, it's like it's just too arduous. Okay, but talk to me from a property owner's perspective, because you know the homeless situation that we've had over the years, longstanding, and we know that there's an eviction moratorium that's about to end, several of them. And what the state's thinking is that this landlord engagement program is going to be one of the cushions when all of that hits. And so they're trying to talk to landlords about renting to people with federal HUD vouchers. How have the moratoriums affected property owners that you know? You know, the, the ones that have been hit hard are the, the mom and pop owners that have one or two second homes. We're relatively familiar with Section 8, I believe it's called, right? There's different enticements in place. Are they enough? No, no, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I, I, would, I would like to say, yeah, that's wonderful. The, the state and the, the federales were trying to create this safety net, but it's... Clearly, it's not enough because we're still in this situation where there's a fair bit of homelessness and there's this gnarly lack of inventory. So opening up the space is challenging. If we just saw a home sell within this past week for $16.5 million, coastal home in Kona, 5,000 square foot, four bedroom, four bath home with the swimming pool that looks out over the ocean and kind of the idealistic Hawaiian retreat. How many million was that again? 16.5. On the international scale, is that expensive? Not necessarily, no. Not for being able to get an oceanfront retreat in Hawaii. Those are kind of getting to be few and far between. Jared Gates, broker in charge at Big Island Homes and Land Company based in Hilo. He's president of the Hawaii Island Board of Realtors.
the hotspot for home sales now on Hawaii Island. And the go-go real estate market's having repercussions on the larger community, according to Kaikea Blakemore. She's executive director of Neighborhood Place of Puna, a child abuse and neglect prevention agency that sees poverty as a root cause of stress on families. Blakemore says they have a disproportionate number of child abuse reports there in the Puna area. But why would that be? Well, you know, it's complicated. I don't think any of us really know. Like, we can look at data all the time and make assumptions. One thing that we do know is rate of child removal from homes is disproportionate based on race as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? We do know that um, children in America in general from indigenous populations are removed at a higher rate. We know that we have cases of child abuse and neglect where we really do want child welfare services to be involved, but the concern is also whether or not that assessment is um, disproportionately impacting families that may experience economic struggle or families based on race. I see what you're working with here. Yeah. Yeah. So how are you looking at the economic piece? We provide services like rental assistance. We have a family shelter and we work in coalitions to advocate for more fair taxation, rent control, higher wages, and things in general that would help families to get back on their feet. Because a lot of families are living paycheck to paycheck, so it's very stressful, and they're more likely to fall into homelessness. How have you broken that down? We focus on children and families. Um, One thing that we know about homelessness, specifically for Keiki, is if you have experienced homelessness as a child, you are a lot more likely to experience it again as an adult because those are such formative, impressionable years. So we know that on my island, on Big Island specifically, 30% of our homeless population are actually children and families. They are minors. And statewide, we know about over 3,000 homeless students. So statewide, that's one in 35 children who are experiencing homelessness. Mm, Okay. Translate that to what needs to get done. Right now, we're doing a landlord engagement campaign to encourage folks who are landlords to accept Section 8 housing vouchers. When you have Section 8, that is a guaranteed payment every time. Another thing that's nice on our island is we have incentive programs where if you are a landlord that is newly engaging with Section 8 voucher holders, you can get, I think, a $500 stipend for home repairs or a $1,000 one if the lease is longer. So those are just some things that can help kind of alleviate some of those concerns. Tell me the need right now and tell me what the real potential is in this landlord engagement program. Well, I I don't want to get too dark, but to give you a picture, um, some of the discussions that have been happening with between nonprofit agencies, government and landlord um, associations, the common thing that we are hearing now is landlords are complaining that it is too difficult for people to access homeless services. So if you really think about what that means, it means that a lot of landlords are not thinking about how to support, they're thinking about kind of passing the buck that, you know, I'm going to evict my current tenant because I have a higher paying tenant coming in. And they would like agencies like ours to pick up the slack for them by housing their former tenants in shelters instead of considering programs like this. And Noe, I just want to say that's really, really dangerous. 
what we're going to end up seeing is a mass exodus into homelessness of our local families and people. Property values have shot up since COVID. So we're really seeing a potential doubling of our population where a large swath of that are local families that will enter homelessness in mass. And the truth is, is our nonprofit organizations do not have the resources we never have. Our shelters are often full. Um, it's not a high quality of life. A homeless shelter is not a long-term solution for our local families. I think for me personally, it's really disconcerting to see that a lot of landlords are not thinking about how to be full community members that are invested in the long-term health of our community. They're really thinking about that bottom dollar, even when it means doubling our population and sending folks into mass homelessness. Oh. Hello, Kaikea. You're um, making sense to me. You're, you're actually, you know, breaking through the bricks in my mind. <laughs> How the fact that so many more people want to move here and they are available as high-paying, attractive renters, that that would put an extra squeeze on the local renting population, of course. Absolutely. While we have this one in 35 Kiki on the street, we have on Big Island, one of the highest housing vacancy rates in America. Our vacancy rate is at 20%. On Oahu, I think it's around 15%, which is really high. National average is 12. And when we look at vacancy rates too, the whole picture blows up even more because we're seeing how folks are kind of like hoarding housing in a way. Um, and I'm not saying it's everybody. There's a lot of small landlords who just have the second Ohana but there are large corporations as well that are doing mass evictions right now to try to upgrade and rent to people who have incomes that are not in balance with what our state average incomes are. What would we have to do? Convince people to make less money for themselves? Um, I, I Honestly, I think we would need some kind of government regulatory intervention at this stage. I think we have to hit it at both angles. We need to make housing more affordable and we need to increase people's wages across the board. Gee, neither of those did too well at the last legislative session. They did not. Very astute observation. So that's another, you know, I work in advocacy as well. Yeah, there were a lot that were killed that would have really made a huge difference in addressing homelessness. The homeless population on Hawaii Island is different from here on Oahu. We have families. So, and I think we could look at Hawaii Island as an example of what could become a forecast for other islands if we continue to allow cost of living to increase while wages stagnate. A large share of the people experiencing homelessness on Big Island are families with small children. So, and the really tragic thing about family and youth homelessness is. You know, whatever your political beliefs are, if you think that people experience poverty because of character defects, um, certainly you can't think that about children. Kaikea Blakemore is executive director of Neighborhood Place of Puna, a child abuse and neglect prevention agency. To better understand what it's like for homeless children, may I recommend a film by Rex Moribe called Dear Thalia. Made in 2014, it opens new areas of awareness. I mean, you really begin to see more. PBS Hawaii aired it recently. Mahalo for that. We'll post a link with this story.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Queens Island Urgent Care, treating non-life-threatening illnesses and injuries at six locations across Oahu. Walk-ins welcome. Learn more at queens.org. On the next Fresh Air, our 2016 interview with culinary icon Anthony Bourdain. He hosted the CNN series Parts Unknown, which took audiences to countries all over the world. He died in 2018 by suicide. His life and tragic death is the subject of a new documentary called Roadrunner. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following Science Friday. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Ulupono Initiative. the core of Hawaii Island's homeless. We'll find out more about their lives from service providers who fear depression-era tent cities are just around the corner. And we'll hear about who's buying where on the Kona side. But first, a passing and a developing story in Chinatown. George Ellis, the much-admired former director of the Honolulu Museum of Art, passed away June 26th. He led the museum from 1982 until 2003. Under his leadership, the Academy of Arts, as it was known then, expanded its art holdings and deepened roots in the community. I sat down recently with Sandy Pohl, director of the Downtown Arts Center, and art patron Tim Choi, who knew Ellis in his prime. After meeting through art circles, Choi eventually joined the museum to become George Ellis's assistant. One of his goals was to make the museum a museum for everyone in Hawaii. Every ethnic group was to begin to realize that this was home to them and their cultural past. George was trying to bring it back to where every ethnic group in Honolulu would view it as home and would become part of it. We had a rather rare Filipino collection there on the second floor. Museum in the country that has a gallery devoted to the arts of the Philippines. So you ended up spending 15 years with him. First socially as friends, and then five years as an employee. And then after that, I would visit him and Nancy in Florida. But he truly loved Hawaii. He became involved in the neighborhood boards, nonprofit organizations. He was even elected into that, the oldest private club that is not publicized in Hawaii. You are elected to membership and informed you are members. It's like a think tank that meets monthly and someone presents a paper and the the papers were all bound and distributed and put on file at the Historical Society, the State Archives and the Rare Book Room at the UH. And it wasn't until the 50s that it was allowed to be accessed by the public without permission. What club was this? the Social Science Association. It was started over 150 years ago. It was all men in those days, and they met in black tie in each other's homes to hear a paper presented. What kind of people got to be in there? Whoever was elected, and those were usually major players, people who could make a difference. 
these are the kind of people who have been art supporters in our community, right? Correct. Some former students had given me this fund of money every year to do whatever I wanted. Eventually, I started to use it for the museum. And George said, I would prefer if you would designate that fund to buy artists of Hawaii's works, because he said, we don't have a budget that allows us to do that. And when we can finally afford their work, we can't afford it because they, they've become so successful. And he said that the Artists of Hawaii annual juried exhibition with jurors from around the world have shown that we have a core group of artists in Hawaii who can stand the test of time and pass the approval of major art institutions and communities. Before that, they never collected Hawaii art. That's right. Because so George, George said by the time they tried to, they couldn't afford it. Ah. And so, you know, and so then there was an account that some of my friends on the mainland created, Friends of Choi, and the money that went into that went towards purchasing local artist works for the museum's collection. Are you supportive of the Downtown Art Center? I have become so because they are stepping in to fulfill a void that the closing of Linacona has created. And also, I'm left with the feeling when I watched George's successors that art education and supporting the local artists really was not a priority of the directors. Art center, I mean, what could a center provide that Honolulu's art community needs? Well, I think it needs a venue where people can be taught art, they can learn art. I think they need a venue where artists can get together and can show art and sell art. I have made a point of coming to every one of those different exhibitions and sales. And I watch people buying art now because it's priced for all possible budgets and interacting with the artists. And that is going to be an invaluable relationship, not only for the artist, but also for the potential collector. Because I could never understand when I would go into the homes of wealthy people who use local designers and the, the art would have been reproductions or not originals and not Hawaii art. And I'm thinking, why aren't more people buying local artist works to decorate their homes with? I'll confess, I stumbled onto three works by Solomon Enos there at the DAC. He had anonymously donated. They were obviously his. I would never have been able to acquire them otherwise. We must support the arts it is a vital component part to the quality of life. Sandy, you're there right now. Downtown Arts Center is in a city-owned building. Correct. What are you paying for rent? Our hard cost is, is $11,000 a month. That's electricity, air conditioning, and our common area maintenance rent. Mm -hmm. You're able to make that sum mm -hmm. without anyone taking any salaries. That's correct. We love the dream. We love what we're doing. But you're not selling $11,000 worth of artwork every month. Are you relying on a cushion? There's no cushion. We have no cushion. We're How do you make the 11? Donations, small money, donating $25, $100. And that pays for some expenses. We're a collaboration of nonprofits, actually. There's eight of us all together. Art shows, exhibitions, they have to pay to rent those rooms. Are you booked? Are you okay? Amazingly enough, we are booked till 2022. We're booked solid the whole year. 
You're kidding. Okay, so you're you can pay. You know, you can pay that eleven thousand. Great, now, right? Our agreement with the city is through August, and we were informed that they are considering doubling our rent. Have you had a chance to talk with the city about this um, increase? No. Basically, they came and they told us what they wanted us to pay. We are trying to make arrangements to negotiate that. What I think is reprehensible was this property had been empty for years, and then to start killing the goose that hasn't laid the golden egg, <laughs> I think is really. Who would be the first arts group to be affected by this situation? September, we're having the Watercolor Association in here. Hawaii Craftsman comes up right after that. Well, the mayor visited and you said loved the DAC. He voiced support for the arts revitalizing Chinatown. So what do you make of the rent doubling? I think there's a disconnect in the business model and what public policy and what mm. makes up a good city, which is the arts and culture in a community. That's mm -hmm. our quality of life. Sandy Pohl, director of the Downtown Arts Center, the DAC, and art patron Tim Choi. Earlier this week, the city confirmed the DAC is paying 74 cents per square foot for a little over 10,000 square feet in the Chinatown Gateway Plaza. The DAC also pays electricity and air conditioning, and Pohl says in June, DAC rent was raised to $2 per square foot, more than double, to take effect September 1st. The city disputes the numbers provided by Pohl, but would not disclose any others because of what they call ongoing negotiations. The city's point person on Chinatown, Alex Kozlov, released this statement. The city understands and appreciates what the Downtown Arts Center has done for the community and will continue to work with the leadership to actively promote art in the Chinatown downtown neighborhoods. Three city departments listed are, quote, working with the DAC to provide a practical financial arrangement for the center while balancing the fairness to other competing art galleries in the area. Tim Sakahara, City Communications, is checking on any complaints about favorable treatment for the DAC. He declined comment on potential plans the city might have for the Gateway Palazzo space. And meanwhile, the Downtown Arts Center is showing landscapes by plein air painters of Oahu and Raku Ceramics by Hawaii Craftsmen. The craftsmen are running a community kiln tomorrow at Mark's Garage, 10 till 2. Take the kids, glaze a bowl, and have it fired by the artists there. The DAC's fundraising, too. We'll post a link with this story. This is Kainani Kahonaile. She calls Hilo home. We'll be featuring her music through the program today. Broker Kaponopa is the broker in charge at Savio Realty in Pahoa. If you check his Facebook page right now, he's listing a well-cared-for off-grid studio cabin in Tiki Gardens, as well as two large homes on 25 acres in Mountain View. Pa says Hawaii Island real estate is truly diverse, and right now, properties are selling like hotcakes. I'm seeing homes in both the Puna and the Hilo area where you can, can't even get a showing within the first few days of it being listed because it's just booked solid with showings and they're gonna receive multiple offers and the home is gonna sell for above the asking price. Wow, that's like trying to get a restaurant booking in Honolulu. 
yeah, from what I understand, it sounds like it's difficult. For vacant lots, the inventory has declined substantially, mainly because of competition with the builders, uh, particularly in areas in Puna, like Ainaloa Estates, Hawaiian Paradise Park subdivision. You know, in Ainaloa, several years ago, you could find a 12,000 square foot lot for between $5,000 and $7,000. Now you're lucky if you can find a lot for twenty-five dollars or even $30,000. And that's for a 12,000 square foot lot. You know something though, Kapono, that does still sound like a deal. It started really maybe back in 2018 with Ainaloa and Hawaiian Paradise Park. And it really didn't trickle out into the neighboring subdivisions. But I have noticed recently, uh, even in areas like Hawaiian beaches and Hawaiian shores, Nanavale estates, places that are actually a little bit more difficult to build and buy now, especially because they're in lava hazard zone two, and we have a lack of available, affordable homeowners insurance there. Uh, in Nanavale, when I looked at these statistics of what was in escrow, there were dozens of lots, over 60 lots in escrow and only a dozen at best available. So something really flipped within those markets. I'm not quite sure what at this point, uh, until they close, maybe we can find out, you know, who's buying those lots, maybe what reason they're purchasing them for. Um, but it's slowly starting to trickle out into different areas. Gee, and what percent over asking are you seeing? It's not as severe as I hear over on Oahu, where there are homes going for $100,000, $200,000 over asking price. Here, we might see anywhere from 10, 15, maybe 20,000 over asking price. So it's not as uh, crude, but it is still driving the market up. For Hawaii Island, we've been fluctuating over the past several months as far as median sales price. And we hit the $500,000 mark earlier this year, but I think we've come down somewhat. I believe last month we were somewhere around $470,000 as a median sales price for a residential home. That's 723,000 below Kauai a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, because of that, the market here is still going to continue to be strong. Because if anybody wants to move to Hawaii from another place or even move to Hawaii Island from one of the outer islands. Which they are. They are, yes. Um, th there's no reason not to. How many home sales do you think there have been on your island since this year so far? How yeah, I actually have that sitting in front of me right now. Fantastic. Uh, so, yeah, year to date, uh, this is through uh, June 30th of this mm. year. So for residential homes, we've had 1,626 home sales. And that's an increase of about 516 homes over last year, which is a 46.5% increase for uh -huh. vacant land. We had through June 30th, 1,700 vacant land sales, an increase of 923, which yeah. is an increase of 118% compared to last year. These numbers are gonna be a little bit skewed because of the fact that from March of last year up until today, we were in a shutdown. Sales were hard to come by during that period. The last number I have here is for condominiums, uh, which we don't have too many of in the Hilo area. Um, they're mainly on West Hawaii but we've had 687 sales through June 30th, 
That's an increase of 380 units or 123%. One last question. Can you just look across your island and just give me maybe the top three busiest areas? Yeah, I believe the Puna district, the South Hilo district uh, on the east side, and then on the west side, South Kohala and North Kona would be the busiest districts as far as real estate goes. And how do they compare? Are they equally busy? Are you equally busy west and west side and east? I think it's actually going to be a little bit busier over in the Pune district. We're going to see a higher number of sales because there are more subdivisions, uh, residential subdivisions, compared to those other areas. I think Hilo would come in second and then maybe North Kona third um, and South Kohala, you know, fourth. They've got a lot more of the condo market in South Kohala and in Kona, where we have a lot of vacant land available in Pune, as well as residential units for sale. Realtor, broker, Kapono Pa is the broker in charge at Savio Realty in Pahoa, Hawaii Island. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Honolulu Waldorf School. Even when your days shift and change, some things don't, like HPR keeping you informed with news you can trust and providing an oasis of music when you need it. So stick with your routine and stay connected at home. Listen to HPR on air, online or on your smart speaker. Whether you're working in your street clothes or in your pajamas, HPR is here for you. Just ask your smart speaker to play Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pineapple Tweed Public Relations and Marketing, believing in the value of creating a more informed public, a supporter of the reporting, news coverage, and storytelling heard daily on HPR. about majestic Hawaii Island with acres of ropey lava fields that turn into ohia forests, rolling meadows up Waimea, the blue drop on the Hamakua coast. I mean, this island is home to 40 unsheltered families, at least. Tony Simons is program director at Nakahua Haleo'uluvini. They work with homeless families on the west side of the island. I got to speak with her and Taylor Kwanan, program manager at the Family Assessment Center, about how the real estate market is affecting families they serve. Kwanan says she and her outreach teams go everywhere from Kohala to Kau. We start really early in the morning because most of the time our families are parked the outreach is really important in getting to those families before they drive off, before they mm-hmm. start their day. It's anywhere from state parks to county parks. It's even going into those residential areas more closer to our low-income housing. A lot of the time, you'll have children that can sleep with um, family members that are housed, but mom and dad are sleeping in the car. We had a lot more patience, I think, during pandemic, but I think when you have a new mayor, things change, right? So they're really looking at 
other ways to manage the parks and keep people out. So they're definitely doing sweeps at, you know, five o'clock in the morning. And we're trying to really prepare here for the moratorium to end. So they really are talking to people who are still currently housed. Correct. What kind of options do they have? Well, it would depend on what's threatening their housing. So if it's something like rental arrears, there's a lot of money going on right now, especially those impacted by COVID, to have assistance to take care of the rental arrears. And there are things like the mediation center, legal aid, fair housing. But we're also in the process of getting emergency housing vouchers from HUD. So we should be getting 112 of those coming up. Will that be enough? No, we know there's more really at the tipping point ready to be evicted. We've had a huge amount of house sales here in Noe's site unseen. So that is the way we have found our landlords have gotten around the eviction. I'm going to sell my house. Here's 45 days. You need to be out or family are moving in. So now you need to be out. So those are the calls that they're getting that they can't really do anything about it because they've skirted the law, right? So we expect these numbers to go higher. As far as people finding housing, what's available? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> former housing locator. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't say that there is no housing, but the housing that's available is so expensive. It is so unaffordable for a working class family. And the vouchers are wonderful. And, you know, we have, we're so lucky. We have housing choice vouchers. We have emergency housing vouchers. This is the most money I think we've ever had. But we were looking online this morning, Taylor and I, and we saw a unit that we know used to rent for, you know, 1900 a month. And it's up to 4000 I just talked to a couple of real estate agents this morning and asked them what incentive landowners might have to rent or to sell to locals? I don't know. I mean, like someone bought a house next to me, sight unseen from Portland, Oregon, right? They're coming six months out of the year and it's a beautiful new home and it sits vacant. Taylor said that she's seen people coming from the mainland and paying six months rent ahead of time good credit, homeowners in the mainland, but they're, you know, what do we call them? COVID pilgrims. And they're taking it all, you know? Everybody wants to live in Kona, right? And so... I don't even know how many times I've heard I moved here because of the weather. It's really disheartening, especially when you look at the generations that have called this place home, but can no longer do that. Last November... Taylor and Chrissy had a client who, they were a giant family, eight family members, and we couldn't find them a place to live that they could afford and stay together. Mom had dementia, father was a veteran, and they were all gainfully employed, right? And so, you know, we said, okay, we can provide you an airplane ticket. Do you have family members that live somewhere else that maybe you could find a better start? We put them on an airplane to move to Texas with their family. And, you know, these are Hawaiians, right? They don't want to leave. They want to stay together, right? And take care of each other. So this was a better option for them. Where are your homeless? I kind of know where they are on the east side. 
always on the go, it seems like, just because there is no safe parking, there's no emergency shelter, but also they still have work that they got to go to. They still have medical and dental appointments to go to. They have everything to do, minus the housing, which makes it so hard. I, so I, I think we see our families in South. They're at KA Beach. They go to Hokena Beach. Some are on the road to Honau now. And then, of course, many of them out in Ocean View because you have undeveloped land out there. We've had some of our largest camps most recently be cleared out, and that was on Liliokalani Trust land. Honokaha Harbor is another oh, spot. Oh, yeah, the harbor. Um, where it's not just single individuals, but we've had a few families having to live in their vehicle down there. And it's incredibly hot. Yeah, it's awful. Incredibly hot down there. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. Do you have the sense that the homeless are increasing on your island? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We're waiting for a surge, you know, because we're preparing for those homeless camps, like in the depression, right? So how is it that we, how do we create um, an environment of safety? Because how else are our families going to survive? So we're, we're expecting as a team to see an increase and homeless families living in tents somewhere. We're not sure where, but we just feel that's coming. Tony Simons, Program Director, and Taylor Quanan, Program Manager at the Family Assessment Center. Mahalo to them and to the whole team at Nakahua Hale O'uluvini. They work with houseless families on the west side of Hawaii Island. My friends, for you, from Hilo. Kainani Kahonaile. intervention and the creation of the mele. The thing that drew me to the inspiration was the actual name Waipunale. I've lived here in Hilo a little over 20 years. I've always been attracted to the name Waipunale, but I never really knew like where it was along the Hamakua coast. Where is it? It's, it's right next to Laupahoi Hoi, but there's no signage along the highway. And before you know it, you're you're out of Waipuna Lake. Over the years, I've met people who have been raised there or who have worked around the area. As I researched a little bit more about Waipuna Lake, what happened was some historical and cultural significance. One of the things was our mo'olelo, our story of Umiali Loang, who was one of the most beloved kings and one of the most revered genealogical lines of Hawaii. At one point in his life, he was in exile and he lived undercover in Waipunalei. And you know, in our mo'olelo, our ali'i, 
are of the best physique, of the best spiritual power, of the best forms of beauty. And so I imagined someone of this stature to be someone that I would want to have lived around. And I had imagined what it could have been as one of the, the lovers of this Ali'i. It's known for its forests, the bird catchers, that's where they would go harvest their birds so that they could pluck several feathers from each bird to create the regalia. Hundreds of thousands of feathers and all the skill required to make these signs of royalty. How do I bring it into modern times and look at how, you know, we might want to choose our partner and what are the good qualities we would um, look for. We're talking about a place, the history of a place, transposing that into a personage that we can have a relationship with. And so you're cultivating, you're trying to make us feel something personal. <laughs> like fresh love, like fresh <laughs> and creating mele for today, documenting our experiences for today. We can still definitely draw upon the romances of yesteryear and um, try to bring in the energy, the information, the wisdom. I see I, people trying to bring in the content, you know, the knowledge, maybe the history, but to really be able to touch the emotional connection that's what's so uh -huh. cool about your music. Yeah. I am trying to um, reach deep within um, so that our children know how, how to connect, how to connect with our land, how to connect with our history. Through music, the vessel of mele, that is one of the most convenient and um, opportune ways to show my daughters what a good relation would look like. I have uh, preteen and teenagers, so how to give them songs that they can learn well and know what they should want. <laughs> Does this song somehow have, you know, guidelines for choosing a really steadfast and, and responsible kane? Partner? Yes, and I wouldn't write a song about anything less. <laughs> no. There you go. Another thing that is important about this mele is that it takes place in the forest. And no matter where your lovings take place, in Hawaiian imagery, the forest represents the place where your best lovings happen. And it's usually portrayed through the birds, the moisture of the forest, the water features, the ferns. The chorus goes, Ilohi Relations are so good that you have you have become elated and 
now you can rest. We've had such a good experience. It's time to relax and enjoy the feeling. Yeah, and so I, I want to promote the healthiness of it. In Hawaiian imagery and Hawaiian poetry, it is nothing of shame. It is nothing derogatory. It is actually to promote health, well-being. You're saying that sexual enjoyment is a good measure of health. Yes, I wanted to create more mele that promote the joy, promote the, the healthiness of good sexual relations, of good romantic relations, and inspire more dancers, more singers to sing this song out loud. And it is appropriate to be teaching the young people for the children to be singing this out loud. In Hawaiian music and through Hawaiian poetry, there are many songs that the children can be singing about you know more adult content, but it's provided in a way that as they grow and they have their life experiences, they can learn a little bit more. The, way the world opens up, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. In in the my my day job, teaching Hawaiian, teaching Hawaiian music at UH Hilo at Kahakaula or Keelikolani Hawaiian Language College. I, mean, I want to show my students. I want to show my community. Like I'm invested, I'm in here for the long haul, trying to get more Hawaiian music into the ears of Hawaii, into the ears of our youth, and to show my generation that we can do it, but we have to do it well, as far as the language and the poetry are concerned, and we'll bring integrity to the front line of Hawaiian music. The title song from her latest release, Wai Punalei. Hear her Parisian track, Kalana Versailles, on your favorite music platforms. Think you'll like it. <laughs> well, my friends, I guess that's about it for us today. Yep, that's this Aloha Friday. Thanks so much for joining us. We have a list of all access art activities that we're going to have to post with today's stories. And we love to hear from you. Call that Top Black line. It's 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Visit the conversation page on the HPR website if you'd like to hear the show again. This program is produced all week long by Savannah Harriman-Pote, Russell Subiono, and Lillian Song. Matt Fairfax is our intern. The theme music right here, right now, Gypsy 808, and I'm Noe Tanigawa. Join us Monday and pick up the conversation with Catherine Cruz. Till then, let's take care of each other, okay? And you have a happy Aloha Friday. (laughs) ¶¶